Hello and welcome. Thank you for downloading this week's Sermon and Prayers of Intercession from the English Reformed Church Amsterdam. We hope you will enjoy what you are about to hear and that you will be blessed. Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the thoughts of all our hearts do honor to you, O God. Amen. Some of you might be familiar with the Irish TV sitcom from some years ago, Father Ted, in which the eponymous character, as a priest in a dead-end parish on a small island, saddled, among other vicissitudes, with a comically stupid young assistant called Father Dougal. The writers, Linehan and Matthews, were good at getting laughs by pushing a concept deep into the territory of the absurd. And in one scene, Ted and Dougal are looking out of the window while Ted holds a couple of plastic toy cows and says, no, Dougal, these cows are very small. Those cows are far away. <laughs> now, let me grasshopper away to a new story that came up while I was a journalist in London nearly 15 years ago. The British Food Standards Agency had threatened to force makers of Stilton cheese, which most people only eat at Christmas and even then very little, to reduce its salt content, which was considered to be dangerously high, thereby destroying its distinctive flavor to the understandable outrage of the producers and their customers. Fortunately, the government's chief scientist at that time, a man with the glorious name of Andrew Wodge, sensibly observed of this and other cases that the content of a food is normally much less important for our health than the quantity in which we eat it. There is nothing wrong with having a seasonal treat. In other words, both consumers and regulators should be informed by a sense of proportion. So, perspective and proportion. I want to keep those two principles in the background while we take a closer look at this morning's readings. The encounter Luke describes between Jesus and the lawyer in the 10th chapter of his gospel is one in which both men are playing to the gallery. Jesus is by now something of a celebrity. According to Luke, not just the 12, but fully another 70 of his followers have been out and about in the surrounding towns and villages doing his work. There has even been some total stranger, some unknown freelance, casting out demons in his name to the dismay of the disciples. Jesus is news, and there seems to be no shortage of challengers, of Cathy Newmans and Andrew Neils, vying either to make a fool of him or to trap him into some statement of blasphemy. Wherever he appears now, he is a target for the braggart and the know-all to stand up and prove how clever they are. And we can plausibly imagine crowds of onlookers taking sides and even placing bets on who's going to come out on top 
This time, it's a lawyer who decides to have a go. And, true to his trade, he sticks to the first principle of advocacy, which is never to ask a question unless you already know the answer. But in this case, it backfires. When he asks, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He is no doubt hoping that Jesus will come up with some wacky new formula so that he can tie this itinerant preacher and wonder worker in knots with his superior knowledge of the law and the prophets. But Jesus isn't falling for that one. Effectively, he says, you're the expert, you tell me. Which forces the lawyer to give an answer from Deuteronomy and Leviticus that any diligent ten-year-old at the time could have produced without difficulty. So, he feels a bit of a fool, and he tries again, probably pretending that his first question was just a softener before the killer punch. Ah, and who is my neighbor? Now, if any of us were asked that question, we would be wise just to quote Luke 10, 25 to 37, rather than get into the sort of argument that the lawyer is hoping for. He wants Jesus to say something like, anyone who is within reach, anyone who lives close by, anyone who needs your help, because then he can go on the attack. Really? What if that person is unclean under the law? What if it's a Roman soldier? What if it's a criminal taking just punishment? Are you going to undermine due process by helping him? And what if it's the Sabbath? Etc., etc. But that's not how it plays out. Instead, Jesus employs the device of the parable. And this is where it gets really interesting. To begin with, the narrative is Judeo-normative, that is, everyone is assumed to be a regular Jew unless otherwise stated. We know this because while the victim of the robbers is described just as a man, his benefactor is described as a Samaritan, not a member of a community hostile to his own, not someone of an alien race, no. In telling the story of someone's kindness to a putative enemy, Jesus specifies that he is a Samaritan, which means that the man he helps has to be a Jew. This is important because it takes the story out of the abstract and grounds it in the reality of an interracial hostility which, with which all concerned, Jesus, the lawyer, the idlers placing bets, are intimately familiar Luke has already pushed that point home in his previous chapter where he records that the disciples have been shunned by a Samaritan village. And since time immemorial, we have described this parable as that of the good Samaritan, as though it were normally a contradiction in terms, even though neither Luke nor Jesus reported by Luke uses that description. But that is how we modern Christian readers of Luke identify with the first century Jews who are listening to this story. That's how we make ourselves part of their club, their tradition, just as they identify with this victim of violent robbery 
and no doubt tut and shake their heads at the callous behavior of the priest and the Levite who leave him to suffer. For these representatives of Jewish theocratic authority are also one of us, and so far Jesus is merely telling a compelling tale of those who should know better failing to honor God. He's just railing against the pride and faithlessness among God's people, like any Old Testament prophet before him. But then everything changes, because suddenly it becomes clear that the victim, the one of us, is not the subject of the story. That distinction belongs to a Samaritan, a hated other, the sort of stock caricature of the heathen whose role in an Old Testament narrative would normally have been either to be defeated as a reward for the righteousness of Israel or to lay it waste as a punishment for its sins. But here he, not the victim, is central to the narrative, not the one of us who has suffered injustice, but the one of them who has seen and taken the opportunity to honor God with his compassion. That is, very obviously, what it means to be a neighbor. So the answer is close up and obvious. As Moses says in our other reading from Deuteronomy, it is not in heaven, neither it is, is it beyond the sea. No, the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart for you to observe. So, unsurprisingly, the lawyer comes a poor second in this contest. And I wonder what sort of lawyer he was. Would he today perhaps be one of those keen to represent a client who felt that they had been othered, yes, apparently that is a word, by a colleague, or taken a dislike to some public display and decided that it had made them personally the victim of a hate crime? Or would he be on the side of order, jurisprudence, and common sense? For it is no accident that it is here in the Judeo-Christian West that we live on the front line against an advancing cultural chaos in which more and more pampered people relative to most of the world are taught to crave the romantic status of the victim and that subjective definition is taking precedence over evidence and fact. It is the triumph of destructive solipsism, the me, myself, I of spiritual consumption, made vastly worse by the abuse of social media that can be accessed without engaging with reality, resulting in a billion sealed-up cells of self-obsession. Social media undermine our sense of perspective with the illusion of proximity and our sense of proportion with routine of an anonymous overreaction, untempered by the conventions of civilized discourse. Any questioning of a fashionable orthodoxy is met with a French revolutionary chorus demanding some form of execution by public loathing that destroys any notion of scale or degree. And this is a big problem because we depend on perspective, proportion, and definition 
to make sense of the world and our place in it. Without them, we go mad, hopelessly lost in an incomprehensible creation without distance or borders, boundaries. But it seems the peddlers of identitarian victimhood are not content with making us all live in a hall of bendy mirrors where we can't tell the very small from the far away or too much from too many. As we know from the experience of too many universities and broadcasters and publications in the US, Canada and Britain, they are also intent on preventing the free expression of thought, lest any transgression be permitted or spontaneously occur. In the beginning was the word, says St. John, and without verbal expression, thought itself withers and dies in a vacuum. Indeed, in that Johannine conception that is the bedrock of our Christology, without expression, without the realization of the innate, there would be no creation. Well, by their fruits you shall know them, as Matthew had it. Now, we are all of us trapped in the self. Our view of the world is necessarily one of concentric circles because we see from one point inside our heads outwards in all directions like a swiveling searchlight anchored to its base. We cannot see round corners, so neither can we see all the unintended damage we have done. This means that we cannot truly repent or be forgiven and reconciled with God, except through Christ, God made man, who on the cross knew divine omniscience of all the sins of his human kind and all the consequences, repented of them and was reconciled with the Father for us all. In him is our atonement and in our communal worship of him and in our efforts to look beyond ourselves to do his work lie our liberation from the prison of the self. That is the message of the parable of the Samaritan, as we should properly call it. We escape the obsession with self by engaging with the other. We achieve a transcendent perspective by seeing ourselves as others do and by asking, who is my neighbor as well as whose neighbor am I? Above all, we look around us and say to ourselves, it's not about me. Rather, we look to Christ, to the majesty and order of creation, and know in our hearts that it's all about him. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come before you with our prayers for the world, your church, and ourselves. God of love, give us a deep love for you so that we can see the world as you see it, feel the compassion you feel, and be a people whose lives mediate your love to others. Open our eyes that we might see what the Good Samaritan saw. Grant us the insight and perspective needed to see the need in others, the wisdom to know what to do and the will to do it. And so we pray for all those 
who in many and various ways have been stripped, beaten, and left for dead. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Unmoved mover, we pray for children who must grow up in the most awful of circumstances, especially for those starved of love, or food, or shelter, or security. May they receive the future you have planned for them. We pray for those whose need we would rather not face up to because it requires action of us. Those who suffer hardship because of war, oppressive governments, unjust trade rules, social exclusion, natural disasters, famine or disease. May the world receive a true picture of their suffering and the factors that cause it, that justice may be done. May the dignity that is theirs be restored to them. Open our eyes so that we know better, that we might not cross the road from human need. Lord, in your mercy. God of mercy, comforter and healer to those in physical, mental and spiritual need, we bring before you now those known to our congregation here or to us personally who are in need at this time or go through a time of loss. We pray for Pamela Robertson, who is in hospital. And we name others in our hearts in a moment of silence and ask that your healing touch may be felt in their lives. We pray today for reconciliation and forgiveness in our own lives. Peace will begin, begin with us, and we ask that changes we long for in the world would be present in our own lives and be an example to others. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of all grace, give us a deep love for you, that we might see your love at work in this world, and that we might go and do likewise. Let us love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Fortify us with the strength that comes from your glorious power so that we are prepared to face all you bring on our path with patience while joyfully giving thanks to you. Amen. 